Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Well, hello there. Uh, it's Monday. How you doing? Uh, get the impression the world is coming apart at the seams. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, do you? If you... If you don't, I, I, I question your uh, observational abilities. At any rate, it is uh, the penultimate day of uh, August, August 30. And, uh, geez, I had trouble sleeping last night. I, 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 I kept thinking, here you are in your wonderful air-conditioned bedroom, you know, and I kept thinking of the people that were suffering and terrified by that damn storm named after me. Thank you, by the way, Bill. Bill wrote, uh, Category four, my ass, you'll always be a category five to me. For those of you who don't know, my given first name is Ida. But I was thinking about all the people down there, and I was thinking about the terror. I mean, I get scared when wind gusts of like 60 miles an hour, or, you know, in one of the storms that we might have a thunderstorm and yet that the 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 fact that it keeps on coming and keeps on coming oh boy oh boy and then i thought and all the hospitals they're already full of they're turning people away i read a story today about a veteran who died waiting for an ICU bed to open. He did not die of COVID. They couldn't get him into the ICU. (sighs) So I couldn't sleep. You know, it's odd that we don't, um, we don't think often of what we do have. <laughs> we we don't. You never do until you don't have it. And and yet seeing that horrifying storm and then being able to go to bed in in my placid Pittsburgh did make me think of the fact that I happen to be very lucky at that moment. I woke up today, obviously I eventually fell asleep. I woke up today, actually the dog woke me up staring at me. He doesn't bother me, you know, he doesn't like nudge me or make noise. But when he wants me to wake up, he just stares at me. Now, how would I know he's staring at me? How would that wake me up? 
but it does. I opened my eyes and there were those big brown eyes staring at me. I groaned. Here's a sentence. I read it this morning in an obituary that I'm not going to share with you. It's of a writer I never heard of named Donald Newlove, born in near EPA, by the way, dead at 93. Says here in the headline, he explored drunkenness. (laughs) Yeah, I've done that myself a few times. And in the obit, it does say that he was once asked by a literary journal doing an interview on him to ad lib, just at spur of the moment, compose the opening sentence to a never-to-be-finished novel. Start a novel for us right now. And here's what he said. Who knows what heartbreak the wind will bring. And I thought, that's what I was thinking last night. And I couldn't sleep. Boy, there's so much to talk about, I'm sort of paralyzed. You'll, uh, You'll forgive me. I also want you to know that I have um, some, uh, you know, non-hand-wringing things to share as well. I I just, I've learned to, you know, parse, just to, to parcel them out with, you know, throughout the show so that things don't get too bleak. Speaking of bleak, Pittsburgh Pirates. (laughs) Speaking of bleak, um, no, I really, I will get to some of the bigger stories. I will, I promise, I will. But speaking of bleak, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, those heartbreakers. But I was reminded of them, reminded of them when um, I happened to, open up the sports section of the New York Times today because they have almost a full-page article on a Pirates game uh, that occurred almost 50 years ago. It'll be 50 years ago on Wednesday. Nineteen seventy-one. And um, it says that the Pirates made history on that day to little fanfare. It wasn't much noted, but history was made. And that is because for the first time in the history of of professional baseball, well, that's not true. I'm thinking of the... like the Homestead Grays, but 
for the first time in the history of the National or the American League, <laughs> that way, a uh, a team, the Pittsburgh Pirates, fielded a lineup that was entirely composed of men of color. It never happened. Danny Murtaugh, who was the guy who put that lineup together, said he hadn't even noticed. And a lot of other people didn't notice it either. Roberto Clemente, one of the players on the lineup, did notice because Manny Sanguian remembers him saying, Dang, I never thought I'd see that in my life. That lineup was Clemente, Sanguian, Dave Cash, Gene Kleins, Al Oliver, Jackie Hernandez, Willie Stargell. Am I forgetting somebody here? Rennie Stennett. And on the mound, Doc Ellis. I mean, baseball had been integrated since 1947, but never had this happened before. Um, The Sporting News uh, made note of it um, in a little teeny article. The Pirates, by the way, won 10-7, although uh, Doc Ellis was not having a good uh, day, and he was out in the second inning. Um when they had to go to the bullpen. And that's sort of what the sporting news reporter said. And it said it like this. It had noted that it was an all-black lineup. And then it said, ironically, it took six innings of strong relief by Luke Walker, a Caucasian, to quiet the Phillies. Uh, Philadelphia Inquirer called it the all-soul lineup. Anyway. Apparently, the History Museum, Heinz History Center, is having a panel discussion on Wednesday, the 50th anniversary of that game. Um and Sanguian and the uh, other uh, two, wait, 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 Sanguian and three other living members of that lineup uh, will be there in a, having a panel discussion. Uh, just so as you know, if you're interested, Sanguian, Dave Cash, Gene Kleins, and Al Oliver. Okay. And real hard to avoid the tough stuff. I'm going to back up a little bit to a story that broke. Um, I don't know. When was it? Friday, Saturday. But one that I didn't have occasion to babble about. And that was that uh, the California Parole Board has uh, recommended that uh, Robert F. Kennedy's assassin, Sirhan Sirhan, be, in fact, released on parole. 
after, uh, I don't know, he served more than 50, 50 years. He's 77 years old. And I didn't know how to react to it. I must admit, I thought to myself, 50 years, more than 50 years, um, that probably is uh, enough if, in fact, the person in question poses no danger to others. And I don't think anyone suspects that he does. But to remember the horror of that day and that news uh, is sort of your 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 need for revenge uh, is still in place. Uh, two of Robert Kennedy's sons. Told the parole board they wanted him released. That would include his namesake, Robert Kennedy Jr. He's the anti-vaxxer, right? What a piece of work that guy is. Robert Kennedy uh, Jr., anti-vaxxer, had actually gone and spent hours talking to Sirhan Sirhan. And because he's an anti-vaxxer, you, you will not be surprised to hear that Robert Kennedy Jr. doesn't even think Sirhan Sirhan killed his father. The other brother is Douglas Kennedy, who's a correspondent for Fox News. I did not know that. And he attended the parole hearing which is more than the uh, the prosecutors. The prosecutors did. Uh, they didn't even show up. So there was a letter that was uh, written to the board um, that the sheriff's department did uh, give to the parole board. And that letter was uh, from the Kennedy family, obviously minus Douglas and Robert Jr. And it was a letter asking that Sirhan Sirhan remain in prison. Sirhan Sirhan was initially uh, convicted and uh, sentenced to to death. Uh, At the time, Robert Kennedy's brother, Hetty, Edward Kennedy, Senator of Massachusetts, had written uh, to the judge that his brother, the assassinated brother, one of his assassinated brothers, would not have wanted his death to be the cause of taking another life. But the judge didn't listen, sentenced him to death. And it was only the, I believe, California Supreme Court uh, 
temporarily happened to strike down uh, the state's death penalty uh, before uh, Sirhan Sirhan's sentence was carried out. So here he is, 77 years old. Apparently, he's going to um, be deported if, in fact, he is released. That remains for Governor Newsom to do, if, in fact, he is going to be the governor. I'm sure he really appreciates having to make that decision and while well, he's trying desperately to hang on to his job to keep it out of the hands of uh, the lunatic right-wing Republicans. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I do up today, don't I? I feel that way. How can you not? How can you not? And so, see, I've already depressed myself, so I got to give myself a break. And I'm doing this too soon. Don't let me do it. I swear to God. Don't let me do it. I'm blowing all the easy stuff. Don't do it. Colin, stop. Do something a little heavier. All right, here's a little something a little heavier. Yesterday, or yeah, it was yesterday, New York Times. Page nine had no news on it. It was simply a full page ad. Now, normally I don't look at those, but you know, you read the headline and it said, protect our children. A message from the nation's children's hospitals. And uh, it turned out that it was, yes, uh, there was a bunch of signatures. Most of the page were the signatures of the heads of children's hospitals throughout the country that had signed this letter calling on both the public and private sectors uh, to protect the children. It has to do with COVID and vaccinations. Because as you know, children now are definitely in the viruses. And they end their letter thusly. Together we can keep our children safer. They need our support, our care, and our commitment to their future, and they need it now with urgency and respect. the presidents, CEOs, and executive directors of the nation's children's hospitals. And then, you know, they did the signatures. And I would imagine that in order to run this, the way uh, it would have worked is every one of these signatories, these hospitals, would have had to, uh, well, maybe not. Children's Hospital Association is probably an overarching uh, I was just going to say pay for it, but it doesn't matter. So I started looking. I, I'm I'm enough of an idiot that I actually looked at who signed it. Not that I know anybody. Well, you never know. And I mean, it's everybody. It's the Cleveland Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, 
Children's Hospital of Mississippi, for God's sake. Children's of Minnesota. Akron Children's, Cook Children's, St. Jude Children's, Cincinnati Children's. St. Louis Children's, Johns Hopkins Children's, Phoenix. Blah, 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 I'm going on and on and all of a sudden it occurs to me Someone's missing. You know, we got a heck of a children's hospital here, don't we? I mean, just architecturally, it's somewhat astonishing. Guess who's not on this list? Yeah, Children's Hospital, Pittsburgh, is not on the list. Why am I not surprised? I mean, how do you, you know, obviously they they were asked. Obviously they were asked. This list is so long, it appears every, there aren't that. I mean, how many children's hospitals are there, specifically children's hospitals? I, I, I would like to know how many children's hospitals are not on this list. Because it would be, I suspect, a smaller number than are on the list. A much smaller number. So, again, I don't know what the excuse is. I don't know what problem they have. But UPMC, God bless them, is not on that list. Now, I'm not suggesting the Children's Hospital here in Pittsburgh, UPMC Children's Hospital, is not uh, into protecting our children. But the administration of that hospital, (laughs) they just don't seem to pay attention. I don't know. I don't get it. They're always caught flat-footed. They're always sort of bringing up the rear, except when I suppose it comes to cashing in. They seem to be way out in front of that. They know how to run a business. That's a sure about a hospital. And while we're at the hospital, let's talk about doctors just for a second, because I am so glad to see this. There are finally growing calls for doctors who are part of spreading disinformation about COVID. There are calls to do something about them. You know, they belong to medical associations. They are licensed, right? Would I mean, they could they could easily be unlicensed. They take an oath, do they not? I mean, just the Hippocratic oath. First, you know, do no harm. And we have all seen uh, videos, and they're they're out there. 
of doctors, medical doctors, people with all the right credentials, wearing white coats, looking very serious and sounding really, really smart. And this is the crap the anti-vaxxers share with each other. They find they've got a doctor. This is a doctor telling them. The masks don't work. The vaccines don't work. So there are calls, finally, finally, to go after these guys. Other doctors are putting pressure on. Get at these guys. The Federation of State Medical Boards, which represents all the groups that license doctors and discipline doctors, recommended last month that states consider, consider taking action against these doctors, including suspending or revoking their licenses. Now, these licensing boards are notoriously fearful of doing anything. That's just from my observations over the years. So I won't hold my breath. But it is astonishing that they you haven't heard a peep. Right? We have a call? Thank God. Dave, hi. Good morning, Lynn. It's Dave from Washington. I happen to have been told that. Yes. How'd you know? Oh, I don't idea, know. I guess. I guess they must have it. Boy, I got, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. My producers now, they're on top of you guys. Yeah, they know who you are. Oh, cool. Okay, well, that's nice. Um, um, Sirhan Sirhan. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, part of me wants to see that son of a bitch rot in jail. Um, but I kind of understand it. Um, there, are, you know, everything everybody does has a little ripple effect uh, to what happens afterwards. Most of it just gets absorbed into nothing and really has no long-term effect. Very seldom does one person commit one act that literally changes history from there on. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald, Sirhan Sirhan. Uh, what, what either one of those two guys did profoundly changed the history of the world that yeah. very seldom happens i guess you could say you know any big assassination like that um 9-11 is an event not any one single person who's ever been Laden, of course but you know now here's, another, here's an interesting trivia question for you time man of the year time magazine's man of the year you know what the criteria for that is it's not the best yeah. it's not the worst it's who yeah. influenced History the most that year. In 1963, and only three times have they ever decided on a name and then ended up changing it because of pressure from subscribers saying, if you name that son of a bitch man of the year, I'm dropping my subscription. In wow. So in 63, really? In 63, they were going to give it to Oswald? Yes. Who more wow. profoundly changed the course of yeah, history than Lee yeah, Harvey yeah. Oswald? Yeah, but they looked at their bottom line. Yeah, and so instead they gave it to who? The guy who would have won it had it not been for Oswald. Uh, John F. Kennedy? No, uh, Martin Luther King. Instead they gave it to Martin Luther King because of the the big march on Washington. And he would have gotten it anyways had it not been for Lee Harvey Oswald. But face it, Oswald 
Okay, in 1965, much far more benign. But they were going to they had a name, and again, at the last minute, they changed it. They were going to name the Beatles Man of oh. the Year in 1965. <laughs> and face it, they had a great year in 65. Um, yes. Movie, yeah. album, song, help, yesterday, you know, world tours, Shea Stadium. They had it, but again, pressure from uh, subscribers say, no, you cannot give it to these guys. They're just rock stars. So they gave it to General William Westmoreland, uh, Vietnam oh, Commander-in-Chief, yeah. instead. Yeah. Oh, Lord. And then again in 2001, you cannot name bin Laden Man of the Year. So no, instead, because you're right. People don't understand what right. the category. I, I mean, uh, yeah, um, they think it's an honor. Well, Donald Trump thought it was an honor. He kept saying he wanted, you know, he, he desired to be mad. Okay, so in 2001. It's a joke now. Oh, it wasn't they... Rudy fucking Giuliani. Don't tell yes, me. Yes, it was. It was Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? At the time, I do remember saying, you know what? Rudy Giuliani, he's like, he, he did kind of rise to the occasion. He had the right, he had the right mix of empathy and sadness. And authority um, yeah. at the time, yeah. actually, yeah. Rudy did a pretty good job. Yeah. Nowadays, it's just he like did. a joke. Too. No, it was before he went off. I don't know, before he went off his meds. I don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> For Trump oh. infected his brain and like some oh, sort of brain man. amoeba. But anyway, I always thought that was fascinating that those three, um, that's the three, three times that they changed their mind on man. They gave it to Stalin. They gave it to Hitler. You know, they gave it to uh, these horrible, horrible people in the past. But the subscribers said, no, 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 you're not going to give it to the Beatles. No, because they're long-haired. Ruffians. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Greatest yeah. band of all time. Oh, speaking of which, another thing I wanted to ask you about Charlie Watts. Yeah, because I think they're the greatest band. I know, you're a big Stone fan. I would do the Stones over the Beatles, and I love them both. But well, I, see, there's nobody okay. else. There's no two that you could put up there and and, and argue about. It's you, you can't say anybody no. else other than one of those two is the best. Obviously, not that. I think. I think. Yeah. The reason why I, I put the Beatles over that is let's go from Ed Sullivan to the time that they were done. Okay, let's just say that that that's the Beatle era. Let's say that six years, six years. Everything you think about when you think of the Beatles happened in that six years. Um, you know, Paul is dead, uh, bigger than Jesus, the fashion, the songs, the music, the movies, everything they did was in a little period of six years, and then it was gone. Whereas the Rolling Stones have been an organic, living, breathing thing for 50 years, almost 60 years now, and they're still out there, still doing it. So you can't really kind of compare the two in a way. And the Stones have yeah. put out a lot of stinkers over the years, too. Um, well, so but if like, you've been putting, yeah, you're putting stuff yeah. out for, you know, 50 yeah. years, of course. But they are the Stones. I, <laughs> I just and, think and, they're more of a rock band. Oh, than, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, when they came here five to six years ago, um, just before that, I was thinking of all the bands I'd never seen, and the Stones was one of them. And at the time, I figured, oh, the Stones, they're not going to tour anymore. You know, they'll do a couple shows in New York and That's L.A. Right. and London right. and maybe. Yeah, right. And then, boom, like a week later, they announced they're coming to Pittsburgh. So, yeah. um, so I got... Uh, four seats to go see him, and I'm so darn glad I did. Because now that was a great, great concert too. That was a good concert. That was an excellent concert. I had a blast. Ah, I mean, I couldn't do just excellent. And you're, you're right; they are a great live act. Hey, your phone's ringing. I know it always rings. A robo fucking call, I can assure you. 
It's my all right. Well, anyways, that's all I wanted to talk about. Just want to let you know. Well, okay. Hey, thank you. It's a Unless pleasure you got to hear from you. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> Go answer right. the phone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I never answer that phone. I never do. It, oh, my God. There's actually somebody leaving a message. Um, How about shutting up? I'm trying to do a show. My God, can you imagine? We could do uh, five hours on uh, who's the best band, Rolling Stones or or the Beatles. They're both just extraordinary. See, I, I, I hate to rank them, but if you, if you forced me, I'd go with the Stones. Obviously, I said that already. Okay, so... Um, What do I got here? Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm taking so so long because I'm I'm trying to figure out if I can bear heading into something heavy. I don't think I can. So I think I'll wait. I think I'm going to do the obit of the day, which is not happy. Uh, and it's not Ed Asner, though I always appreciated his work. Uh, it's William G. Clotworthy. How's that for a name? William G. Clotworthy. He had a He's a lucky guy. He had, he had an interesting career, and I'm a, I'm about to tell you about it. Um, he had wanted to be an actor. Never, never happened. I mean, how many people wanted to be an actor and never, never happened. He did go and he trained and all that, but just didn't get there. So he did something that. He got a job. This was just for a few months, uh, like eight months, I think. He got a job at uh, NBC in the beginning days of, of television. And so often you see this same note in the obits of people who, you know, get a big obit. He was a page You know, a gopher at NBC. They, they, I mean, there were people, the two jobs that you could see you could get in were pages and somebody who worked in the what? Mail room. Well, he started in the mail room. And, and that was back in the time when upward mobility was still real. I mean, a possibility of starting at the bottom someplace and working your way up. It really is. I mean, it is next to impossible because we're a much more stratified, classist uh, society. But there he was. He was an NBC page, and this would be in the 50s. And uh, the big program at the time at NBC was the... Texaco Star Theater. Remember that? 
No. Well, I, it rings a vague bell in my head. The host, you'll maybe remember, Milton Burrell. And his job, Clotworthy's job, was, I mean, not entirely, but one of his jobs was always to escort Milton Burrell's mother up to Studio A8H before every performance. Uh, he left NBC, tried again at acting, didn't work again. So he became a madman. He went into advertising. And he worked at a big advertising agency, BBDO. And that advertising agency, of course, uh, ended up dealing with television a lot again. So he ends up sort of back in television because in the early days of television, uh, many of the big shows were owned by corporations like the Texaco Star Theater. They were sponsored by a corporation like General Electric Theater, right? And whenever one of those corporations had a show on NBC, it was Clotworthy's job to make sure that their clients, the corporation's uh, products and their interests were given good treatment, obviously. So when it came to something like General Electric Theater, you remember who the host of that was? Sure you do. He was an actor named Ronald Reagan. But like on General Electric Theater, Clotworthy made sure there was never anything like a gas stove on uh, a kitchen that might be you know, part of the drama. Sat in the kitchen. That stove damn well better be a GE. So far, his jobs are seem, seeming real easy, aren't they? <laughs> I'm thinking, I'd like a job like this guy's had. And he actually became very friendly with the host, Ronald Reagan. And uh, they remain friends all their lives. So he ends up, the final thing that he ends up doing, the thing that got him yoga in the New York Times. Well, I'll just read the headline. William G. Clotworthy, Saturday Night Live censor, is dead at 95. Now, I don't know if you knew, but it makes sense, that NBC, having Saturday Night Live, having this show, was often nervous about what might be said 
what might be done? Would it violate the standards of the network? And so there had always been a sensor that the network assigned to specifically deal with Saturday Night Live. He started in 1979 after 30 years in the advertising uh, business. He had never even watched the show. And I'll tell you this, there are a lot of things that Saturday Night Live had worked up skits that you never saw because William G. Clotworthy said no. But I don't want you to get the impression that this guy is a jerk because as I read the obit, it's very clear that he was a really cute character. And in fact, he's quoted in the obit saying this, a writer once asked me, what was the first thing I did when I read one of the scripts for a skit? And I said, I laugh. He even laughed at the ones he said, "Uh uh-uh. You can't do this. You know he was a good guy because cast members, even though he said no a lot, they liked him. Uh, Al Franken, former cast member and former U.S. senator, is quoted uh, in the obit as saying he was really an ally. Sometimes I'd lose, sometimes I'd win, but he was always sophisticated in his understanding of what we were doing. Now, Clotworthy eventually wrote a book about his <laughs> his experience at Saturday Night Live. And uh, he said um, one of the things he regretted was killing a sketch in which several fraternity brothers in the middle of lighting their farts are interrupted by Smokey the Bear, played by Joe Piscopo. Now, this is one of those scripts that he laughed, and then he said, "Eh -eh, you're not doing it. He later in life thought, why should I let that go? And there's one that he did let go and then later regretted. And one of those, and maybe you'll remember this one, was uh, called Vomitorium, in which the cast, you know, were like but showing Romans eating and drinking and uh, eating and eating and then throwing up and then eating more and then throwing up because that really was, I mean, that's historically accurate. Abominatory. <laughs> it was sort of, you know, before bulimia. Um, then there's a very famous skit that he altered, and you'll know it. This has to do with Eddie Murphy playing Mr. 
Robinson, a take, you know, take on Mr. Rogers. I don't think Fred ever really liked these, but uh, in this particular one, uh, Mr. Robinson, Eddie Murphy, looking, you know, just like Mr. Rogers and putting on his cardigan, uh, finds a baby outside his apartment door. Now, you'll recall that Mr. Rogers often had a word of the day, which uh, written on a, a blackboard. And so the skit was that the word of uh, the day for that episode <laughs> was bastard. And Clotworthy said, you are not saying bastard on network TV. Isn't that interesting? Think of that. You are not saying bastard on network TV. But instead of shutting the skit down totally, the writer of the skit, a guy named uh, Kevin Kelton, said, look, let's, let's figure out how we can do this. And, and eventually they negotiated. And Clotworthy let the word appear on the board. It was written there, bastard. But Eddie Murphy, Mr. Robinson slash Rogers, would be interrupted by a visitor before he could say it. So when Clotworthy said, you cannot say bastard on network television, this smart writer said, well, okay, we won't say it, but could you like see it? Clotworthy uh, fell in love with the show. He just, it was the greatest job he, he ever had. He really loved it. And uh, he would be there from the first, and he looks just like his name. He's bespectacled and, uh, you know, so he has a, I don't know. He looks like Mr. Peepers. Do you know who that guy was? He he just he looks like a, he's a thin, small, little, but with a cutest smile. And he would sit on the first script read through, which always happened on Wednesdays. And he would be saying, "Ah, he'd be raising red flags and and saying, I don't think so." And he would remain in and around the studio through the entire broadcast. And I mean, and in the broad, when it was broadcast on Saturday night, he'd be in the control room uh, to make sure, uh, you know, no obscenities slipped by, which did happen um, on occasion. And the obscenities would be edited out for uh, the Pacific uh, time the West Coast uh, airing. Um, I guess in 1981, 
one of the cast members, a guy named Charlie Rocket, uttered a forbidden four-letter word. Of course, I'm reading this in the New York Times, so they still will not print the word. And um, here's a quote from the book Clotworthy read, wrote about his tenure there. The control room went absolutely silent. Then, as if on swivels, every head turned to look at me. I saw this through my fingers, mind you, as my hands were covering my face just before I beat my head against the console. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, William G. Clotworthy, Saturday Night Live censor, dead at 95. He, he, he was the censor till 1990. And, and then he, he ended up writing a number of books, amateur historian. This shows how cute he is. One of the books, uh, he uh, visited every site that claimed George Washington slept here. <laughs> it says, who knows? Who knows? Uh, hang on. Okay. Uh, Josh says, yeah, Hitler and Stalin were on the time cover, yet the Beatles were forbidden. Caller Mike just meant, caller, what, what? The Beatles had such a short run compared to the Rolling Stones. I love them both. I got to hear the Stones the last two times they played. Me too. They closed the bridge and there were hundreds of part people partying. Could hear the band perfectly. Also saw Ringo's all-star band at Station Square in the mid-90s. Saw Paul at Console Energy. It was the first ever event at that venue, even before the Penguins played there. He played for nearly three hours. Wow. Where did I read that the Beatles initially, um, their concerts ran all of a half hour in the early days? Maybe that's because they didn't have that many songs. I mean, in a half hour, they could pretty much play everything they had. Uh, that Mike, by the way, and Mike was not the caller. Dave uh, was the caller. Uh, Barbara has sent me this. The viral load in Florida is so high right now, there are only two places on the planet where it's higher. Well, I already said this on the show. This is, I think, old. If Florida were another country, we would, we would probably ban travel. Uh, to it. Oh, I don't know. It's so depressing. Okay, so we're back to being depressed. Clotworthy saved us for a, for a little bit there. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. Bree, writing from, why are my lights going off? I've, I've got like an, there's an attempt to like definitely, God, okay. Bree, uh, writing from Malaysia, says, Clotworthy was a fellow Syracuse grad. Yes, in his biography. In terms of network censors, Hill Street Blues 
often uh, wrote bad words on the chalkboard behind the sergeant who gave the talk before the beat went out. They would often make it so that the camera angle moved and then the word would become apparent. Yeah, wait a minute. I lost my connection. Oh, dear. Um, I just want you to know, are, am I still on? Are we still there? I guess if I lose my connection, doesn't mean you necessarily lose connection. What else do I add? Hey, hey, Zach, am I, am I on? Will you let me know? I can't tell. Okay. My computer's gone. Uh, you can reach me in some manner. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Really, sorry. COVID. In the that Mississippi tree out in healthcare. And that brings me And then quite clearly, um, so
Can I hear anybody? I'll just for babbling here. And and I'm incapable. Uh, hey, Zach, I think we should just bring uh, this whimpering. And, um, so, if anybody's hearing me, so uh, bad. I had some good. Will. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.